Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, in through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. All right, uh, hey audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Investment Group and I'm so happy to have all of you here for Casey Conway's Commercial Real Estate State of the Union presentation. I'm sure there's a lot more information that he's going to be sharing and I just want to quickly go and just introduce myself for people who do not know me and okay, I'm James Kandasamy. I primarily work with my wife Shanti. Uh, I do the acquisition investor relationship and she does the property management and construction management. We are deal Sponsor focusing in Austin and San Antonio, Texas. We have you know more than 160 million asset under management. Uh, 2,000 units. That's not 200 units. That's a that's an error there. Nine apartments, 50 million dollars raised among uh, 300 investors. We also vertically integrated company, which is primarily integrating construction and property management into the whole uh, investment arm as well. Uh, check out my book, Passive Investing in Real Estate uh, in Commercial Real Estate. It's a best-selling book. Sold more than 2,000 copies of it that was last year number i do not know what's the this year number but it should, it should be higher and i have my own podcast which is called achieve wealth through value at real estate investing podcast which this webinar will be in a webinar plus a podcast format because i will be repurposing this uh, webinar for a podcast as well so there's a lot of questions and answers uh, even though i'm trying not to disturb uh, you know casey's uh, flow of information which is going to be very powerful uh, we have our own Facebook group, which have like 8,500 people right now. It's called Multifamily Investors Group. So if you want to go and join, if you want to go and look up in Facebook, it's called Multifamily Investors Group. You can see a lot of me there. And we have a, a mentoring program as well for active and passive investors, uh, which is part of the Achieve Academy. Uh, it's just name Achieve Academy. You know, if you can go to achieve-academy.net uh, to see that. All right, uh, Casey, uh, let's go to your presentation. We'll just call you the 7D guy, seven dimensions there. That's impressive. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm going to write a book at the end of this year because at age 58, uh, in the middle of a pandemic, in the fourth quarter of a year when no one's, you know, doing business or whatnot, I decided that that's the, that's the right time to start a company for the first time. <laughs> I was going to call it, you did what? <laughs> But we're we're off to a good start, so we'll have to you'll have to get some tips from me because you you got good seven dimensions there. So really glad to be with everybody, and um, so we'll just jump we'll just jump right into it. And you know, James, if there's something you want to interrupt and ask a question, or you see something popping up in the Q and A, uh, let me know. Here's my disclaimer to protect you, so you can protect all 200 of those apartment units. The, really, the number was the 200 units that didn't have a pipe break, right? <laughs> Two thousand apartment units. 2,000, but uh, only 200 uh, didn't have <laughs> so your, your poor wife, that's why she's, uh, Shantae is, is yeah. worn out. So. Yeah. 
Look, here's the disclaimer. Some of you may have heard the rumor that I've declared 2021 is the year of yogi. Um, by that, I mean that all of Yogi Berra's famous yogiisms or bearisms will actually make economic sense. So, you know, it ain't over till it's over. The pandemic, vaccinations, I don't even think we're through the elections. Uh, that's still going on. The Fed, quantitative easing, destroying the dollar. N nothing's over. I think this is the perfect year for, for yogiisms. But my favorite is, and you embrace this, uh, James Law, you do, with your company and Achieve, you got to be very careful if you don't know where you are going because you might not get there. And then I think Yogi um, was a closet property manager in CCIM. He was a real mathematician. His most famous mathematical equation was, you better cut the pizza in four pieces uh, because I'm not hungry enough to eat eight or six. So <laughs> I think we, we should uh, posthumously make Yogi a CCIM. I think he was a real mathematician. I think he, he was a closet real estate guy. <laughs> That's cool. <clears throat> uh, so since we just celebrated uh, International Women's Day, I, I found this one. I thought this would be a good one. So all the, all the women on the that are joining, that uh, your life expectancy is growing and men's, men's ours is not. So women outlive men by 5.4 years. So um, you're going to get it all. It's all, it's all coming your way. You're going to control the companies and the government and all the assets. Just got to wait five extra years and we'll all be gone. So I think that's very good, very encouraging. So let's try to find something to celebrate with the women. You, you, you truly live so much better than us men. We, we die earlier. So I always kind of have a couple of uh, early perspectives um, that I open with. And one of them, some of you may have picked up on, it always comes out in January of each year, late January, early February, is the U-Haul migration report. And United Van Lines does one as well. Um, and so I put this out here because when you talk about housing and you talk about you know multifamily and whatnot, we kind of want to know where everybody's moving from and to. And the good news is a lot of them are moving to Texas. Texas and Florida are always one, two, or three every year. You're the perennial favorites. Um, in 2020, Tennessee, and this is as a percentage, not an absolute number. So it's okay, Texas. If they went absolute number, you'd be number one. <laughs> but they did it as a percentage. Uh, the percentage of net move-ins was highest in Tennessee. And largely that was due to, if you might go back to the Amazon HQ2 decision in Boston and Nashville were the big winners of all the IT and data center jobs. So there were 5,000 that were created in, in um, Nashville. Most of those were filled last year. So that's why uh, Tennessee was up there. Texas is steady, always strong there. There's some others that are kind of interesting here. Look at Ohio at number four. What the heck's going on? I guess it's they really think the Buckeyes are going to win a championship here, that you know Alabama's going to let them do that. <laughs> I, I don't know. When you have that many uh, championships, uh, I always get in trouble with the dean because I said, you know, to have that much talent and that many championships, you got to be cheating. <laughs> you got to be doing something on the side. But uh, I'd get scolded, but I don't have to worry about that anymore. But look at Missouri, and there's a lot going on with Missouri. Um, and then the Carolinas and Georgia always in there, South Carolina. Look at where we're moving from. Um, so a lot of migration out of Louisiana. That was heavily influenced by 30 hurricane storms. <laughs> That'll get a lot of people to move out. Um, but look at, you know, Maryland and the Northeast and New Jersey and Illinois and California, New York, they're, they're all at the top there. So good news for Texas. Uh, your apartment should be full and your housing should be selling just fine in 2021. Lots of people moving there. Yeah. This and, is one, though, that concerns yeah. me. And, and yes, I just want to remind the uh, participants or attendees, if you have any questions, there's a Q&A box and please type in there and we'll, we'll go to the questions at the end or halfway through.
Yeah. If you see any that we should grab while we're going along, just grab them and interrupt me. Yep. Put them in. Don't be shy. I won't bite. It's a Zoom. I can't bite, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> so this slide I'm looking at what's happening to our 18 to 29-year-olds. And this is startling. So we have the highest percentage in our nation's history of 18 to 29 year olds that are living at home now, again, with mom and dad. That broke the all-time record in um, uh, the 1940s uh, when all the uh, everybody doubled up as the GIs went off to war in World War II, where we had 48% living at home. And it blew well past what happened in the doubling up in the Great Recession when the subprime mortgage crisis, where we were in the, you know, basically low to mid um, 40% range. So why this is important is I've got two millennials. I got two in this 18 to 29 year age group, um, both in the 20 plus. Uh, the reason it's important is if this age group isn't able to get jobs or elects not to because of COVID and working remote and it's easier to be at home and mom and dad with a great laundry plan, Wi-Fi plan, meal plan, um, and they decide not to go out and form households. This is something we got to watch what it does and how it translates to leasing and apartments and home ownerships and everything else, the home ownership rate. Um, I think it's going to see a hit from COVID. So the good news is where are people moving? The big states, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Arizona, Florida. So those will be the locations that are buffered from this. But you look at the West Coast, you look at the Northeast, they're going to be pretty, pretty hard hit by this. So I'd keep this on your radar screen. All right. This one I love. Many of you know I'm a big fan of visual capitalists. They're great at visualizing data and getting us to think about it in different ways. So they put this one out either earlier this week or the end of last week over the weekend. And what they did is they equated every state's GDP, their annual GDP, to that of a country in the world. So look at Texas there. Your guys aren't as big geographically as Canada, but you have the, the equivalent of the GDP of the entire country of Canada. That's pretty impressive. Uh, California, United Kingdom, you know, there could be a bad bellwether here. I think they did a Brexit. They exited. So maybe this is a, you know, foretell California is going to have to exit or the San Andreas is going to go off. Uh, look at Florida. Its GDP is equivalent to Mexico. So I'm Irish. I'm looking forward to St. Patrick's Day coming up. So I kind of like Tennessee. Their GDP is the equivalent of Ireland. So I thought you might have fun. This could make some good conversation with somebody or family and get you thinking about your state's GDP. So here's where I was going on that. Um, forget the national GDP numbers. We have this debate going whether we could be 6%, 8%, beat our all-time record uh, even after World War II in the 1950s, beat uh, China's. Uh, it's really irrelevant. More of that GDP is going to be influenced by restocking. Uh, we shut everything down. We um, got to restock everything. That's largely what we're going through right now. I look at what the state-level GDP is. So California, Texas, New York, Florida, and Illinois are still the top five in terms of GDP. But there's some big trends on that left side of slide 10 going on. Texas has surpassed New York now in GDP. That's a huge accomplishment. Florida has surpassed Illinois. And New Jersey's had the biggest decline. Um, Georgia has surpassed um, New Jersey in terms of its GDP. So there are structural changes that were really going on you know, even a little bit before COVID. And I think after COVID, we're going to see these GDP numbers change even more. I put in the, on the right side, you can see the number 11 to 20. Um, but what's really interesting in the middle there, the, you know, 25 plus, and I put a little yellow there by Alabama. 
Um, I know you guys have been dealing with a lot of other current events like the weather and the ice storms, but there's something going on in Alabama that we all need to pay attention to. The 5,800 Amazon workers in Alabama are going through a mail-in um, vote. We don't do anything in person anymore, you know, we all do mail-in. So they have till the end of March, March 29th, I think is the deadline to opt in or opt out of unionizing Amazon in Alabama. Now, what strikes me is the last state in the union after Texas that I thought might go union was Alabama. And I think this is a better than 50% chance it's gonna happen. It will systemically change logistics um, and how, how we you know, continue to grow in this e-commerce era. It'll also change the dynamics of what has benefited Alabama. They've been a right to work state. They've attracted a lot of manufacturing automobiles from Honda and Mercedes and Mazda and Toyota and, um, and Hyundai, uh, you name it, and Airbus for manufacturing the Portomobile. I think all that comes to a screeching halt if they unionize Amazon and that Alabama will fall off the site selection radar screen for many companies. And so this could benefit uh, you guys in, in, in Texas. So um, I also put something at the bottom of this slide. And I do know, James, that we're talking to an audience that's Texas concentric. So I didn't make a mistake putting Iowa on here, but I wanted you to know about yeah. the Iowa Economic Development Authority. Yeah. I look yeah. at all of, all of them around the country. It is the single best one. Um, what they do is they allow you to go in free of charge and compare your state to any other four states in the country based on whatever metrics you want to put together. So if you want to compare based on electricity rates or home price appreciation or consumer spending, you can construct the metrics that you want to correlate your MSA or your state to to any other four states. And then you can keep doing this in, a, in an iterative fashion. So you can download the Excel and have all states done. It's phenomenal. It is as powerful a tool as site to do business. So if you need a quick thing, you got a client, uh, you're doing something where you need a, an investor to compare something in Texas to somebody else or another investment, th this is a very powerful tool. So it's one of my cliff notes I'm sharing with you, one of my little cheat sheets. <laughs> um, yeah. And I tip my hat to Iowa on that one. Yeah, we have an uh, audience from all over the nation, all over the nation. So it's not yeah. in Texas. We'll, we'll uh, salute the Iowa ones. The, the Hawkeyes are good folks. <laughs> All right. The other one is if folks don't subscribe to Site Selection Magazine, I encourage you. It's a fairly inexpensive, 100 bucks or so a year. And the reason is they do uh, at least annually, maybe twice a year, a state of the states report. And they take each of the states and they rank them and they stratify in different categories. And so you see Texas, number two in GDP behind um, California. That's pretty impressive. But they break out the categories where you rank in the top. And so I, I picked a few of them here. It's, it's really interesting to see how many you rank in. So let's start with the best one, number three there with the little, it's like a microscope. This is you rank number three in the nation in terms of higher education and R&D expenditures. And this is what companies are following. This is why a lot of the tech companies are leaving the West Coast and California and coming to Texas. You have the R&D infrastructure, the education that they need in technology and skilled workforce. In the number six ones, you got two there. Um, one is ranked by lowest electric power cost. <laughs> Dallas may have to fix that one after the storms, but I'm confident Texas is going to be just fine. And then um, the other number six is in fiscal health. You're very solid um, and, and well-regarded and, you know, you hadn't even had to add the income tax yet. So that's very good. And then number 11 is an important one um, as well. 
uh, looks at the overall business tax climate. And so uh, you, you came in in the uh, tax foundation number 11 on that. So, so many metrics here. And the reason I point these out is if you're working with investors from around the country or different locations and they're looking at one state versus another, this is another great place to go to and help them understand what's driving the economy. Why are other companies going there? Where are you ranked high? And remember what companies are looking for is they're looking for low cost in terms of cost of operating a business, whether it's from a tax standpoint or utilities, they're looking for access to workforce and, and they're looking for you know that infrastructure like the universities and R&D. So Texas does very well. You can look up your state all over the country, those of you on different states, it's real easy to do. Uh, I put some things at the top there on recent site selection announcements in 2020 to point out that even with COVID and the shutdown, site selection didn't end. Uh, San Antonio picked up Navistar, Huntsville picked up the Space Command headquarters, and the, my favorite one is Maryland. So uh, the Treasury Department has concluded that um, they're going to get a lot more calls from the Fed to print money. So they're going to develop a new cash printing plant in suburban Maryland. So uh, that's my new favorite. If you think the Fed's easing off monetary policy, I don't think so. Not when Treasury is planning on building a new cash printing plant. I think we're going to be printing a lot more cash. So buy real estate as a hedge against the devaluation of the dollar by the Fed. <laughs> All right, here's another one they did, which is five ways that COVID-19 changed site selection. And I put up there, remember this Alabama unionization of Amazon is gonna be a real game changer, not just for Alabama if they endorse it and approve it, but I think everybody that does logistics and supply chain, and, and that extends to you in, in Texas and other big places where Amazon's put a lot of assets. But here, number three was the thing I wanted to point out, the most attractive locations for site selection before COVID, became even more attractive. We found out that was what was making those states work before COVID made them work even better during COVID. And so you'll see Texas claim the top spot. And then you can see the others that follow in there, uh, North Carolina, Florida, and Virginia, very impressive in the mid-Atlantic and uh, the East Coast. And then a tie for fifth place, Missouri. Remember I told you there's something going on in Missouri in that U-Haul report, Ohio as well, South Carolina and Tennessee. Um, there's a lot going on in the Midwest uh, of our country, and um, it's not, you know, the old rust belt. It's whether the trust belt or the just get or done belt or the logistics belt. Um, there's a lot going on in the Midwest states that um, you should take a look at. All right. Think, so see, you want to clarify on why Texas continued to be the number one top spot? Yeah, I think it's those things that worked, you know, uh, easy pro-business environment easy to get things done, whether it's to, you know, look at Tesla. In one year, from the, the year that they announced that they're gonna build a facility, it's under construction, the site's done, all the approvals are in place. That would have taken one to two decades in California. <laughs> so a lot of companies are taking notice of that. You can just get things done. I think the other thing is the access to all the infrastructure you need, whether it's R&D, universities, workforce, ports, rail, uh, all of that in, in logistics infrastructure, and I'll talk about that in a minute with the um, the new American Society of Civil Engineers um, quadrennial every four-year report. Um, but I think a lot of it is that way. The pieces of the puzzle are all pretty much put together on Texas. And as you saw before, where's the myth? Where, where do they rank low? There, there isn't a, a low mark on, on that list. What about, what about North Carolina? Because that seems to be a new player, right, from last few years to now? It, it is. They are a force. And I'll tell you, the other one is Utah. Uh, so Utah and North Carolina. So when people ask me where are my top places, my picks for around the country, I tell them uh, Salt Lake City, San Antonio, 
in anywhere in North Carolina. <laughs> um, the Carolinas are a force to be reckoned with. You know, they're siphoning things out of, um, let me go back to one slide here. I think I, I didn't put it in here. On the United Van Line slide, I have a map and it shows all the states that are really attracting from the United Man Van Lines migration report. And the thing that's interesting there is they ring Georgia. Georgia isn't the dominant force it used to be. It's significant, but it's North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Florida. Uh, it's all the places around it in the Southeast. So um, it, it just has a lot of things going, going forward. It's got, whether it's logistics, whether it's access down to the South Carolina port, whether it's universities, education, skilled workforce, uh, it's got a lot of those pieces that are, that are in place. And what about, I mentioned about San Antonio. Can you clarify why is that? So a couple of things. So one with the new USMCA agreement and NAFTA, um, San Antonio is very important for that kind of commerce movement of goods and components between Mexico and the U.S. It's also got the port of San Antonio. People laugh when I go through the North American ports and I say, and the one with the least amount of water that's probably the most important is the port of San Antonio. It's our technology port. They do all the cybersecurity and everything there. Uh, you also have a lot of government uh, and military workforce that are highly skilled, very disciplined, very reliable workforce. And again, the education cost of living is very good in San Antonio. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of there. And, you know, if I were going to probably come to Texas, I think I would have San Antonio at the number one or two spot uh, on my list of where I would go in, in Texas. So affordability, uh, skilled workforce, uh, technology, education, uh, all of those things are very good in San Antonio. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, that's good. Thank you. All right, so here's a few things I'll go through. These are the 10 items I'm monitoring that really are influencing my outlook for the year. And I think we have a, still a tough first half of the year. I haven't changed that. The vaccination efforts not going like it planned. I think we've missed spring break. I think we're gonna mess up a good part of summer. Um, but I think we finally get back in the in the fall and it starts with leisure travel. And I think business travelers travel is gonna be very slow to come back. So I'll start with vaccinations and we'll end with my favorite ESG, environmental social governance. So a resource um, that may not be doing this much longer. The current administration is a little bit upset at Becker's for putting this information out, Becker's Hospital Review. They've been putting out a weekly update as to how vaccinations are going. So they, they highlight how many vaccinations are made available to each state and what percentage of those get actually administered. So you can see on the left side, the states have been doing a very good job. And on the right, those that have room for improvement. So you can see Texas ranks 42nd out of the 50 states in terms of actually administering the number of doses that it gets. So Alabama is very bad. Alabama and Georgia and Arkansas were at the bottom. Georgia and Arkansas moved up. Alabama stays down there near the bottom. Um, so a lot of room for improvement. The reason I put this out here, if those states that can get vaccinations done successfully and quickly will open up sooner and quicker and get their economies back going um, even stronger than what we thought. Those that fumble the ball on it are going to see that they're going to miss spring break. They're going to miss summer. And it may be more of next year before they see the full recovery. We've got to get vaccinated. We get everybody vaccinated. We get to that herd immunity or herd vaccinated or you know whatnot. But we've only got about... 15 to 18% of all Americans that are vaccinated, and we're almost three months into this year. That doesn't foretell that we're all going partying and on vacation in June. I think there's a lot of work to be done. So um, fortunately, we have two more effective vaccinations to go with Pfizer and the new Johnson & Johnson. So hopefully these numbers will improve, but I'm using this to gauge 
how quickly the economy is going to restore and soar back to what it was. And um, I think it's going to be a little bit slower. I think it's more yeah. the second half in the second half of the second half. Yeah. Casey, with some of the states declaring they are open uh, and also you know, taking off the mass mandate, do you think that would be you know, helping out in any of the you know, commercial real estate aspect? Well, it should. But if you notice, you know, many of them, the businesses are still you know, keeping masks in place and still being prudent because they don't have a liability shield. So just because the governor or the you know mayor or the local government say you can be open and take the masks off, the businesses have to be a little concerned because they still could be sued for, I think I got it at your at your super spreader event or your restaurant. So I think businesses are going to continue to have to be guarded. You look at airline, uh, the airlines Delta and Southwest are not, you know, doing away with the masks, even though they could say in Texas. Again, I think some of this stuff is common sense. Um, and, and some of it's premature when Georgia first opened up in, in late May to early June. And they said the first thing we're going to open up is bowling alleys and tattoo parlors. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> um, so and we've not done very well with vaccinations. So I think some states, you know, it's just it's an ideology, whether the mask really worked or not. My philosophy is it sure couldn't have hurt. And so I can deal with wearing a mask, but I'd like the businesses and I'm a capitalist and believe let business figure out how to deal with that. If we can go to a, a liquor store and we go to a grocery store, I don't know why we can't go to a lot of other things, including our churches and whatnot. So I just want this behind us. I hope we can get beyond it. <laughs> what about California? Why is that in this list? I think California, we're hoping that Texas keeps fracking and, and oil's back above $60 a barrel. And the reason we want Texas to keep fracking and, and drilling for oil is to keep that pressure on the San Andreas Fault. So it just goes in the ocean sooner sooner rather than later. All problems in America be solved. <laughs> I'm being a little facetious there, but... Um, you know, California is it beats to its own beat and you look at the response by business and population migration, the number one place that people are leaving is California, more so than even New York. And that's businesses, it's people, every element, I think, of the economy, whether it's schools, whether it's taxes, whether it's regulation, every element of it is, is pretty badly broken. So I, I'm not a bull in California. I don't get invited to go out there and speak very often. <laughs> It's a long drive, so that's okay. I'm not flying yet. I'll just do the drive. All right. The next one is look at the transportation metrics. You know, I watch the rail. As goes the rail, goes our GDP. And the good news here is our supply chain's working again. Any of you having trouble? Any of you having trouble getting toilet paper at the grocery store? Nope. Um, the ports are experiencing record volumes. We had our worst months of rail traffic in March and April and October. October, November were records. And believe it or not, the container traffic on the rails um, was up overall in 2020, over 2019, despite the COVID. So that's pretty incredible. So supply chain's working. That's good for industrial. The TSA passenger count, I've told you this is my proxy for the leisure and travel industry. And we know two and a half million of us were traveling daily a year ago. That fell to 85,000 in April. We've only climbed back to about 40% capacity. We need to get back to about 80% capacity or about a million eight passengers a day for the airlines to survive. Delta and Southwest will be true survivors. They have the cash, they have the plan, they have the right aircraft. Um, American and United are the ones we have to worry about. So for Texas, you've got good situation with Southwest at um, Hobby and in, in, in and out of your state. Um, but I think you need to pay attention that there's still going to be route consolidation. 
and changes. So if you're in a market like Houston that has two major airports, um, you may see fewer flight offerings or more of Southwest do Hobby and Les Bush uh, Continental and Delta may shift things around. And in secondary markets in states, you know, look at, say, South Carolina or North Carolina, Greensboro or a Charleston or a Columbia, South Carolina, they may not have the same flight service. And you may have to fly into, say, Charlotte or a Raleigh and drive to those nearby destinations or a state like Alabama, you may have to fly to Atlanta and drive over to Birmingham. Uh, we just don't know what's going to happen here. So I'm really worried this will have a big impact on the economy, tour, uh, convention business, uh, business conventions and conferences and all of that stuff. So this is my proxy on how the health of the leisure and travel industry will come back. The airlines say, even if we fill the planes up with leisure and travel, they only account for about 30% of our profits. It's the business traveler. So if the business traveler doesn't come back, it's it's not just filling the seats up, but it's filling them up profitably. And 70% of the profits from the major airlines come from the business traveler. So I'm not real optimistic here. So here's Southwest. Pay attention to the airport. Uh, you can go to your airport authorities and look at their codes. I will make one um, complaint for you, James, that you've got to go fix. So on, this, on the uh, Hobby Airport website, the most current data is through 2014. I think they can catch up. <laughs> they, that must they, be error. They, they, they need one of those technology companies uh, to come. Uh, other airports, it's phenomenal. You can get these statistics. But I was just shocked at how out of date Hobby statistics were on their on the airport website. So go fix that, will you? <laughs> I'll try. All right, housing. Near and dear to your heart. So I think we've talked about this before. I've written last year that there's another quartile of housing that's been ignored. It's the one in four American households that can't pay rent or their mortgage. And that's what we have today. We have one in four that are in rent or mortgage forbearance. And then down at the bottom, we have another 5.2% that are in delinquency on their mortgage. To put all those together and say one in four are in housing stress, uh, we have to go to the Great Depression, not the Great Recession. So none of this is gonna get discussed covered until all of these intervention programs and now this new $1.9 trillion plan because evictions and rent forbearance and mortgage forbearance and all of this stuff, unemployment, has all been extended into September of this year. So what I thought might come apart and reveal things in the spring is now going to come to the fall. And the more we kick this down the road, I think the worse the problem is going to be. So the media and, and the National Association of Realtors want you to believe the top two pictures, a record home price appreciation, no inventory, no excess supply. But the bottom is what I'm worried about when you look at what's coming when we take all these supports and support programs and intervention away, I think there's a day of reckoning coming. And I think we could see uh, as bad or worse a housing crisis um, that we saw in 2009 or 10. And believe it or not, when you look at the, where what state has the most number of households most at risk of foreclosure or eviction for multifamily, Texas is number one. When you go to the visual capital site, they've done it for every state. So it's kind of kind of scary. It's not California or New York, although they're in the top five. Believe it or not, North Carolina is in the top five. So I'm still trying to work through those numbers to figure all that out. But So, uh, so, so is that for single family or is that for multifamily, right? Uh, that's mortgage. That's on the mortgage. So uh, the single family or condo. Um, and then on the, on the uh, multifamily, you're at about 10% of all renters are in a forbearance program. And I think what we're going to see on multifamily 
is a significant portion of rent forbearance become rent forgiveness. Um, that's the consequence of elections and the current administration. And I think there's going to be a means testing and I'm throwing a number out there. Let's say renter households that have 50,000 or less in income, I think they're going to get off, get offered something like rent forgiveness. So if you're a multifamily investor, owner, property manager, you better be redoing your cash flows and, and whatnot for two things. Number one, let's assume that rent forbearance have to pay it back. Well, if they amortize that out over, say, a year to 18 months, you're looking at 10 to 15 percent rent increases when you've been in forbearance for a year or more. And so your ability to then increase rents further is going to be greatly limited. So if you had cash flows, assuming two to four percent rent increases in 2021 and 2022, I think you need to take those out. At best, they're going to be dealing with the ability to amortize their rent forbearance. What I think is really going to happen is half of that rent that you know, that was foreborn that you think you're going to get back. I think that a, a significant portion, half or more of that is going to be rent forgiveness. And you're going to have to eat it. They might give you some tax benefit or they might just conclude, you know, you're just, you know, you make too much money. You should be able to eat it. Suck it up. This is part of the wealth redistribution program that, you know, seems to be popular today in what we're doing. So I think if you're a multifamily investor, property manager, owner, you really need to be thinking down the road nine to 12 months. What happens? What are the unintended consequences of rent forbearance? For rent forbearance and what happens if it becomes rent forgiveness? That cheer you up? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So question for you in terms of like single family houses, if there's a lot of things going to be happening in fall, would that mean that it will be a much better situation for multifamily because all that people need to... Uh, rentals, right? No, I think you're exactly right. Um, because think what happens in housing, it's just like in commercial real estate, the class A office tenants get stressed, they move down to B and C space. In housing, if you can't afford to own your house, and fortunately, you probably won't have to go through foreclosure. The homes, there's such a shortage of inventory and prices are strong, you can probably sell it and take care of your debt. So your credit comes out okay where you can rent, but you'll probably have to rent either um, you know, look at the growth of four rent subdivisions where you can rent a single family home. Uh, look at that shadow inventory. Companies like um, America Homes for Rent, which are big and doing stuff in Texas. Um, these four rent subdivision developments are a new type of shadow inventory for multifamily. And they compete with two nice two bedroom, I'd say class A, A minus B plus multifamily. These new four rent subdivisions um, compete on a price per square foot and aggregate rent, just under $2,000 for multifamily. And why fall, Casey? Why not winter or now summer or now? That's when all these programs continue. So rent forbearance, mortgage forbearance, all that stuff continues now. Eviction uh, moratoriums by FHFA, all of that is extended now through August. So it won't be, those now won't come off until September. And I'll make a bet with you right now. I bet that gets kicked down the road. <laughs> so until we get that Band-Aid ripped off, or are we not going to know what we don't know? How does that play out? Got it. Thank you. All right. So here's the one the vigil capitalist did. You know, if you look at the, you know, the 17 million homeowners that are most at risk, you know, Texas has the most, at, you know, a little over 700,000, then California, New York. But look at places like Florida and North Carolina, a lot of states with good economies that have come through this okay. And so uh, I think a lot of this is because it's the big urban markets. That you know, think about you know the Dallas, or think about the Atlanta, or think about the Charlotte, um, where people aren't going back to the urban areas, or they stretched either to rent or own and have moved to the suburbs, or they've moved back with mom and dad in Missouri or Ohio. 
uh, or somewhere else. And so what, what, what happens um, to those, to those places where well, that's their plan B to fall back. So this kind of visualizes where the single family is going to could potentially be the worst. And it's kind of surprising when you think about the States, I wouldn't have picked Texas to be number one. All right. Office. This is going to be a big determinant on housing. And I think this is very bullish for the suburbs and the secondary markets and not so good for the big urban areas like New York and San Francisco, you know, Atlanta, the downtown areas. So I'm looking at two things to tell me what's really going on office. The first one, and this is a report by Colliers that was recently done. It looked at the amount of accumulating office sublet space. And we now have over 44 million square feet. And uh, that is 30 million square feet higher than it was at the peak of the Great Recession. So these are real numbers. Companies are really bailing out. They'll continue to pay their rent. So the office buildings aren't gonna go into foreclosure and workouts immediately, but the companies are saying, we're gonna write it off. We're gonna try to sublet it. And over on the right there, look at the kind of rent discounts that they're giving. So look at Houston, it's 50% off to sublet. Uh, look at Atlanta, 20, almost 25%. Uh, and look at it, Manhattan, over 15 million square feet of sublet space. That's a lot of high-rise buildings sitting empty. That's probably about six or seven high-rise office buildings. What this is telling me is even the companies and the interviews with tech companies and financial service companies are saying, look at our workforce is telling us, you know, they may need to be in an office one or two days a week, but they'd rather be in the suburbs. They don't want to go back downtown. They don't want to pay for parking. They don't want to pay for dry cleaning. They don't want to be in long commutes. They want to be closer to home. So I think what this means is our, our work, our remote work is going to put us back in the suburbs and secondary markets closer to where it's convenient and doing stuff with our families. And so that means that housing, the multifamily housing, the single family housing that is in the areas around the big suburbs, uh, big urban areas, um, are going to be probably the beneficiaries. And I think suburban office, suburban multifamily, suburban housing is the real winner here. And um, I'm seeing it in the Southeast markets, the prices, the rent levels, the acquisition for value renovation, rehab, uh, assuming you can get the materials. <laughs> it's, it's months rather than weeks to get the materials for renovation, whether it's lumber or carpet or bathroom fixtures or structural steel. It's a, it's a real challenge. But uh, so I'm, I'm paying attention to this. And the other one I'm paying attention to is the Castle Systems key card data. They're the company, Castle's the company that has all the technology and tracks what we're doing with our key cards, whether we're going to the office, not going to the office. And what they're telling us is still only one in four of us are going back to the office. And the number is best in Dallas. So you've got right now over a third of the workforce are going back to work. And this is even over the last two weeks with your winter storms. And worst uh, is really, you know, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, you know, you're under 15% in the 13% range number. So if these numbers don't get back to 60, 70, 80% by the fall, office is in real trouble. And it's going to be even more bullish for that suburban multifamily and multifamily in secondary markets, because that's where we're going to be working remote. And we're not going to want a small, unaffordable one bedroom in an expensive urban setting. We're going to need a two or maybe a three bedroom so we can have an office and a roommate, uh, at least a two bedroom for an office and my, and my bedroom. So I think particularly these older units that are larger in square footage that have two bedrooms. You, in, in the many of the Southern markets right now, you can't get a two bedroom or a three bedroom apartment. They're just tremendous short supply. So um, those are my thoughts on office. Final thing on returning to work, pay attention to the jobs numbers and ignore 
the government's monthly um, BLS numbers like we just got last Friday. Um, it's a household survey of a thousand people, don't know who they're talking to. I look at the ADP private payrolls and the ADP private payrolls number that comes out the Wednesday before the first Friday, it was the worst since April of last year, excluding December where we lost 75,000 jobs. Think about that. So if everything's recovering and everything's reopening, why are private employers not hiring more? That's a real concern to me. And the challenger gray, I look at the job cuts. We had fewer job cuts in February, which is typically happens. We have a surge in January after the holidays. And then we see it pick back up March to May as companies readjust and get ready for the second and third quarter of the calendar year. So um, I'm watching that ADP and I did not like what I saw in ADP at all. Um, not, a, not a good number. And it, what they're showing is the fewest hirings are by big companies, those with 500 more employees. It's worse with technology companies, believe it or not. It's worse with financial services companies. And the real growth is in those companies with 50 to up to 500 employees. So whether reopening maybe a franchise or a second location or that middle market company, those are the ones that are going back to work. And it's still our very small businesses and in our big employers that are not hiring. All right, let's talk about the credit metrics. So I look at TREP, it's a proxy for what's gonna happen in the banks. So TREP follows all of the permanent securitized loans by property type. It's wonderful, it's a Lego movie in industrial. Of course, we know that with supply chain. Um, multifamily looks pretty good, but I wanna put a cautionary note here. If a multifamily loan is with Freddie or Fannie or FHA in some capacity, and it's in a, a, a loan forbearance program because they're giving rent forbearance, it can't transfer to a special servicer and it can't be called delinquent. So we are masking potentially a bigger problem in multifamily than the under 3% numbers that are showing here. Lodging is atrocious. We, should, we, should, we know that. One in four hotels are already transferred to the special servicer. They're giving up. They're not even going to fight taking it over. And another one in five are delinquent. So it's going to be really ugly in hotel. And I just be careful in multifamily. Just remember that that if you're in a loan forbearance because you're giving rent forbearance, you can't be classified as delinquent. I think we see the multifamily delinquency numbers rise in well above 3%, maybe as high as 5 6% um, when all of these intervention programs come off. So I think there's some bad news. And this is going to be very bifurcated, very bifurcated by geography. Big urban areas, not so much suburban and secondary markets, Huge on the West Coast, huge in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, those expensive places, not so much Florida, Texas, and Southeast or inland mountain region markets like Utah, Colorado, and Arizona. All right, earnings. And also on these special servicing rates, the loans transfer special servicers. This came out early this week or over the weekend. Trep put a piece out and said that we just had our fifth consecutive month where the LTSS on the left there, the loans transfer special servicers declined. And the inference was everything's gonna be okay in commercial real estate. And so it was time for me to issue a barbecue sauce award <laughs> or at least a warning, it's premature. And I put in there, temper your enthusiasm about this because we haven't even begun to deal with the problems that are ahead of us. We still have intervention, we still have stimulus, we still have rent forbearance, we have all these things uh, that are going on that are skewing the loans that can transfer to special servicers. So uh, I would temper, understand how these numbers are constructed, what influences them. It's great to see it come down. I think we're setting ourselves up for some real disappointment at the end of the year when these numbers spike pretty dramatically when we have all these intervention programs come away, go away. 
That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.